Our Bible reading this morning before our lesson will come from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I shared this story once before, but back around Thanksgiving several years ago, a lady called the Butterball Hotline to find out if the turkey she found in her deep freeze that was 23 years old could still be eaten. And the uh, person on the end of the hotline informed her that if, in fact, it had remained frozen for those 23 years, it, it could, in fact, be eaten, but it would have lost all of its flavor, and so they would not recommend that she cook that turkey. And so her response then, after hearing that information, was, that's, that's what I thought. You know what? I'll just donate it to my church. <laughs> and oftentimes, that's the mindset we have towards giving. We, we have this, this um, mindset that we're going to give out of not our abundance, but out of our, not out of our abundance or our excess, but out of our leftovers, out of what we don't want anymore. See, our mindset toward giving isn't like that widow in the, in the parable who gave the two mites that, that parable Jesus told. It's not like this woman who, who Jesus praised for her giving because when she showed up at the temple and she put in those, those uh, inexpensive coins into the collection, she was doing it sacrificially, giving everything she had. We have this mindset toward giving that's oftentimes... I'll get around to it if I can. Or I'll, I'll, do, I'll do what I can when I can. But generous giving is the mindset Christians are called to have in Scripture. And unfortunately, generous giving is often the exception rather than the rule, even in the church. Scripture asserts, though, that kingdom citizens are cheerful givers because they recognize that there is joy in giving. 
Today we continue our study of the book of Philippians, this study called Finding Joy in the Journey. This is our next to last lesson, and we're going to focus our attention on the last part of Philippians chapter 4, chapter 4 verses 10 through 20. We'll come back and get the first half of Philippians chapter 4 next week. I intentionally did them out of order because uh, chapter 4 verses 1 through 9 will give us a great wrap-up of the series. But when we get to Philippians chapter 4 in these last the verses 10 through 20 basically, what we have is Paul thanking the Philippian congregation for a financial gift they sent to him while he was in prison in Rome. And in the midst of this uh, thank you that he's writing here at the end of the letter, we can see Paul indicate how giving can be a source of joy. And so this morning we want to consider how there is, in fact, joy in giving. And one way there is joy in giving is it provides encouragement. Through giving... Excuse me, there is joy in giving because through giving, you encourage others. Now, we don't typically view our giving as a source of encouragement for others because we have the mindset that our giving is done privately. You know, we do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing to go along with what Jesus has to say uh, at one point in time. But when we think about giving, it's not something we think, oh, my giving is going to be an encouragement to other people. But that's what Paul says happens here. Paul indicates here in Philippians chapter 4 that the giving of this congregation over in Philippi is a source of encouragement for him particularly. We need to understand that, that, that giving can provide encouragement, and it's a source of encouragement to those individuals and those ministries that benefit from it. Look at verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, how did the church in Philippi demonstrate their concern for Paul? They did it by sending him some money. If you look at verse 18, he says this, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Now, here's something you need to understand. Paul is in prison in Rome. But the, the, the Roman prison system didn't, didn't operate quite like ours. You don't get room and board while you're there. You may be a prisoner of the state, but that doesn't mean the state's paying your bills. And so while, Rome's in, while Paul is in prison in Rome, he still has to have the funds to supply his own needs, whether it be his, his uh, lodging, his food, because his, he's under house arrest, by the way. So you have the situation where Paul needs finances to survive. And the church in Philippi has heard of his situation, and they're going to provide those finances. And so Paul is, is thanking them for the payment they sent, the gift they sent through Epaphroditus, and he said that they revived their concern for him. Now think about that. Why did he say they revived their concern for him? Well, it's because this wasn't the first time they had demonstrated their concern via a gift. If you look there in chapter 4 of Philippians at verse 15 and 16, Paul said that when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. So when Paul is saying, I rejoiced that you have revived your concern for me, what he is saying is that he's encouraged, he's uplifted by their gift. Not because he received money from them, but because the gift they sent was proof that they really cared about him. 
You see, love is most effectively demonstrated through action. And the act of giving on this occasion showed Paul that the church in Philippi really cared about him, really loved him, really wanted to be a part of the work that he did. And as a result, he was encouraged. See, there's a simple but important principle we need to take away from the fact that this congregation is supporting Paul in this instance. And, and, and that simple but important principle is this. Salvation is free, but ministry is not. Salvation is free, but ministry is not. It costs money to maintain a facility like this where hundreds of people can come and hear the gospel proclaimed. It takes money for us to broadcast our classes and our worship service out into the community so that hundreds, if not thousands, can hear the gospel. It costs money to, uh, to uh, run a jail ministry. It costs money to provide a ministry to young people. It costs money to have missionaries in countries all over the world who are teaching and preaching the gospel to lost people. It costs money to do kingdom work. And Paul is saying, as someone who is reliant on the funds that are brought forward by this congregation, he's encouraged by the fact that they continue time and time again to give. He's praising this congregation for their continued support of him because it was his personal source of encouragement. And so we need to recognize that there is encouragement in giving. It's an encouragement to people who are in ministry when they know that there are folks who want to be their partners by giving to that ministry. That language of partnership is how Paul de described the relationship between himself and the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here in chapter 4 and verse 15, we read it a moment ago, but he said, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You see, there are ministries and there are individuals who rely on the giving that we do here, whose work is encouraged by the offerings that we make right here. We are a source of encouragement all over the world because of what we supply to those who are working in the far corners of the world. And we need to understand that the giving that we engage in is an encouragement to them because without it, their work would cease. But you know what? Giving is not just an encouragement to those who benefit from it. Giving can be an encouragement to other congregations as well. Our giving is the source of encouragement to other congregations. Now, this isn't mentioned in Philippians, but I think it's worth mentioning. See, elsewhere in Scripture, Paul made it clear that a congregation's giving has the potential to encourage other congregations to be active givers as well. Just look at how he talked about the church in Philippi, not here in the book of Philippians, but in the book of 2 Corinthians. See, Paul wanted to inspire the church in Corinth to give. And he held up the churches in Macedonia, which is the region in which Philippi was located. He held those congregations up as an example. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in the first five verses. 
He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That includes Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What Paul is saying is that the church in Philippi had a great reputation of being a giving church, and he could hold them up to other churches and say, hey, give like Philippi. That church was a giving church, and, I'm, and they should be a source of encouragement for you to be a giving congregation as well. I want you to think for just a moment. What's the reputation of the Buford Church of Christ? What do other churches know the Buford Church of Christ for? Some of you have come from those other churches. Some, some of you have worshipped and attended at other congregations, and, and you, you've heard a reputation about the Buford Church of Christ. Maybe the reputation of the Buford Church of Christ is, is this a church that stands for the truth? I, I believe we are. I, I, I believe that, that we teach and preach the truth of the gospel, and I believe that's an important thing for us to have a reputation for. I, I, I hear though it varies at times, that some people will say we have a reputation for being a friendly church. Other people will say not so much. I hear we have a reputation of, of having a great youth program, and, and I believe it. But does anybody go, hey, that Buford Church of Christ, man, that's a giving church. That church knows how to give. Maybe. But isn't that a reputation worth pursuing if we don't already have that reputation? Because then that makes us a congregation that people want to partner with. People want to work with the Buford congregation because they know that they're going to be encouraged by their giving. You know, here's the thing. Giving may be an individual responsibility. It may be a, a quiet and private practice we engage in because, as I mentioned from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 3, not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But ultimately, our collective giving should be loud and known. Not our individual giving, but our collective giving as a congregation. It should be loud and known in the sense that it becomes apparent to those individuals and ministries we support that we are partners with them in their efforts to grow the kingdom. So be a generous giver, knowing that your giving encourages others. And that, for you, should be a source of joy, but it's not the only source of joy. There is joy in giving also, because through giving you invest in eternity. I heard a story one day about a man who went to the bank and withdrew all of his money in cash form. He brought it home in a big bundle, and his wife asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm going up to the attic. I'm going to put all my money in a trunk up there. That way, when I die in my house one day in the future, I'll be able to grab it on my way to heaven. A few years later, he did pass away, and he passed away in his home. And his wife, sometime after his passing, went up to the attic to do some cleaning and rearranging. She noticed that trunk. She opened it, and there was all that cash. And she said to herself, I knew he should have put it in the basement. I know, it's not a great story, but it is funny. The whole point is this. You can't take your money with you when you go. Your money's not going with you. 
Your money's staying here. But there is one thing you can do with your money. You can, in a sense, send it on ahead. And I think that's what Paul's alluding to here in Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 17 when he says, Not that I desire your gifts, not that I, not that I need or, 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 or want your money per se, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that, it be, that more be credited to your account. An account. What account? He's talking about your heavenly account which is something that the Bible alludes to on multiple occasions. Think about Luke chapter 12, verse 32 and 33, where Jesus told his disciples this. He said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags, money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus' point is that there is an account that's untouchable by the things that deteriorate in this life. There is a heavenly account, and the way you handle your money, the way you give, the way you invest in heaven is by utilizing those funds for kingdom opportunities. And it gets credited to your account. Or think about this passage in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul instructed Timothy to teach those who are rich in the present age, to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, he says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What these texts are saying is that you can't take your treasure with you, but you can send it on ahead, and you do this by giving. When Jesus talked to the disciples, told them to sell their possessions and give to the needy, that was how they would store up treasure in heaven. When Paul wrote to Timothy about those who are rich in this world, he told them to uh, be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, and that's how they would store up treasures in heaven. You see, when it comes to our money, we're expected to be givers. And in being givers, and being generous, and in sharing, and in helping others, and in investing in kingdom opportunities, we're sending our money on ahead. We're utilizing it now so that, the dividend, so that the dividend is paid into our eternal bank account. That's the whole idea. And you know why that's so important? It's because of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter says is that everything down here, everything material, everything physical, yeah, it's going away. It's not going to persist. And so here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to show up on the day of judgment and stand before the Lord and he, he, he say, hey, give me a, an account 
of what you did with all the blessings I gave you. And you say, sorry, Lord, I, I can't really give you an account. They just all got burned up. That's what you don't want to have happen. So invest in your eternal account by doing what Jesus, and what, Pe- what Paul wrote about, being generous, giving, sharing, investing in kingdom opportunities. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, as Jesus said. There is joy in giving because it results in investing in your eternity. But there's also joy in giving because it pleases God. Look again, Philippians chapter 4, at what Paul says, particularly in verse 18. Did you notice how Paul described the Philippians' gift? He called the Philippians' gift a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. An offering, a sacrifice. And I think the reason Paul's using this terminology is because he understood that giving is a form of worship. I think one of our problems is we consider worship to be singing. We consider worship to be praying. We, can sing, we consider worship to be, be, be uh, doing those activities more than we consider it giving. Because giving feels so passive. You know, when you think about our time of assembly today, how much of that time is spent focused on singing? A good portion. How much of it is focused on biblical study? A a good portion. And then how much of it is on prayers? Well, we have several prayers throughout the service. We even dedicate a a substantial amount of time to remembering the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper whether it be the comments that preceded it or the actual activity of engaging in it. But when it comes to the giving part, and I, and I know at this point in time, uh, in the parameters we've, we've placed to help maintain everybody's health, giving doesn't take near as long as it used to. But giving is a very quick thing. The collection plate comes by, you drop in your check or your money or, or whatnot, or you log into the bank account online and you hit the button to send the money over, Right now, you walk by a box and drop it in. It's a very passive activity. So it's very easy to forget that giving is worship. It is a form of worship. In fact, think about this. The very first time the word worship is used in the Old Testament, it's in the context of giving. You have to go to Genesis chapter 22 to find it, and it's when Abraham was on his way to sacrifice Isaac. He was accompanied by a couple of his servants, and when they arrived at the mountain on which he was going to sacrifice Isaac, he turned to those servants And he said, knowing that he was about to give his son to the Lord, he turned to those servants and said, Genesis 22 and verse 5, I and the boy will go over there and worship. Abraham knew what he was going over there to do, and it was to sacrifice his son. It was to offer his son to the Lord. But he called it worship. And you know what? That's not the only time that worship is associated with giving. The very first time you come across the word worship in the New Testament, it's associated with giving as well. It happens in Matthew chapter 2. It's when some wise men decide they want to make the journey to Jerusalem because they wanted to meet the Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, those wise men show up. And in their search for Jesus, they stop and speak to Herod. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
What was the key activity those wise men engaged in? They gave something to Jesus. They came bearing gifts for Jesus. Giving is an act of worship. That's the point we should take because we're introduced to the concept of worship in both the Old Testament and the New Testament through giving. Giving is an act of worship. And here's why giving is so important. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18, it's pleasing to God. Now here's something I found very interesting. Paul referred to the Philippians gift as a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice. That's not the only time he paired fragrant offering and sacrifice in the same sentence in the New Testament. And I found it very interesting when I went to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 and saw fragrant offering and sacrifice in the same sentence again. Because in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, this is what Paul said. He instructed his readers to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's the point. When you give, it's pleasing to God because guess what you're doing? You're imitating His Son. His Son gave first. And when you give with the cheerful heart and the attitude that God has called upon us to, to, to operate from in Scripture, you're imitating his son, whom he so graciously sent to die for us. You want to be like Christ? One way you can start being like Christ is by giving like Christ. A fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice. There is joy in giving because through giving you please God. Through giving you in fact imitate Christ. But there is joy in giving also because you learn Contentment. And what is contentment? Simply stated, contentment is satisfaction. In the context of our study today, contentment is a state of satisfaction when it comes to money and possessions. One well-known English author and philosopher once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more, and the other is to desire less. You know, for most of us, when it comes to contentment, our problem is not our income. I think our problem is our insatiability. And the answer to our problem is not for us to acquire more, it's for us to desire less. Because you will never be happy until you learn to enjoy what you have without needing more. And that's what the Bible calls contentment. And, and here's the thing. Scripture says contentment can be learned. So return to Philippians chapter 4 with me and look at verse 11 and 12. Here, Paul, before he addressed the gift that he received from the Philippians, he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty 
and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the thing. Paul wasn't born with a contented heart. He didn't inherit, inherit a content heart. He wasn't gifted a content heart. He learned how to have a content heart. And the point is that contentment is the result of adopting a new way of thinking. And this new way of thinking is mentioned by the author of Hebrews, who while writing to people that were having their wealth confiscated simply because they were Christians, said this. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, contentment is a byproduct of trust. You cannot learn contentment until you've learned to trust God. A lack of contentment is usually not an indicator that we're barely getting by, that we're under-resourced or giving away too much. A lack of contentment is usually an indicator that we're trusting too little. And ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has struggled with trust. Think about Adam and Eve. When the serpent approached them, tempted them to eat this forbidden fruit, he placed within them the doubt that maybe God is holding something back. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Maybe we can't trust God anymore. That's the, the mindset he's placing in Adam and Eve. Maybe we can't trust God. Maybe he is withholding something from us that would make things better, that would give us more. And ever since then, we've struggled with this. This trust that God will indeed supply every need. When it comes to our money, some of us wrestle with trusting whether or not God, God can provide. For some of us, there's a little voice in the back of our minds saying, I don't know if God will come through if I'm obedient to his word about giving. If I give this away, I may not have what I need to do this. So maybe I need to hold on to it. And this struggle with trust is the reason we struggle with being content. But this mentality of distrusting God is an affront to him because he has not only promised to meet our needs, but to do so in abundance. That's the point Paul made in verse 19 here, Philippians chapter 4. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul's not the only one in Scripture to make that claim. But you may be sitting here today. Ah, you hear me talk about giving. Yeah, you know you need to be giving. But giving can be so tough. Maybe indeed there is joy in giving in all these ways that I've mentioned today, but it still doesn't make it any easier. You may be sitting here thinking, you know that Philippians 4.19 passage where God says, where Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours. That sounds great, but that's not been my experience. Maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, I can't say that God has met all my needs. 
So Philippians 4.19 doesn't apply to me. But, but maybe you're looking at it wrong. See, maybe the problem isn't that God has failed to supply all of your needs. Maybe as one preacher said, you're not asking God to meet your needs, you're asking God to meet your greeds. Because Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply every need of yours, not every want or desire of yours. We must admit that some of the things we petition God for are not born out of need, but instead are born out of selfish interest. And that's why James says this in James chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So it may be that you're not experiencing the promise of Philippians 4.19 because you're asking for things that are you, that you have incorrectly identified as a need rather than a want. Or maybe the reason you're not experiencing the blessings of Philippians 4.19 is because you haven't been storing up treasure in heaven. See, the reality is that the promise of Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 is for those who live by verses 14 through 18. And what I mean is that God promises to meet the needs of those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And it may be that you're not storing up treasure in heaven and therefore you're not seeking first his kingdom and therefore his promise doesn't apply. See, God's promise of meeting your needs has a contingency. That contingency is that you will prioritize his kingdom interests and one way you do that is by being a giver. So to understand what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with me, verses 6 through 8. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, that Paul says this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you understand what God is promising? God is promising that if you are a cheerful giver, He will make sure you will always be able to fulfill your cheerful giving. If you want to be a person that gives to the kingdom, then God will make sure you have the means to do so. Just look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Here's the point. God loves a cheerful giver, and God's going to make sure that when he finds a cheerful giver, he can keep pouring out blessings on them so that they can keep giving for him. But you can't pour out, or excuse me, he can't pour out blessings in the hands that aren't willing to be opened like that. So if you want to experience the joy of God's abundant blessings, if you want to experience the promises of Philippians 4.19, you have to seek first the kingdom. And one way you do that is by being a cheerful giver. A story I heard about a wealthy English baron from back in the 1800s. One day he took a carriage to a particular location, and as he got out of the carriage, he tipped the driver of that carriage. He thought it was an adequate tip for the time, and the driver kind of looked disdainfully at him and said, your son always tips me more. And that wealthy baron replied, well, he can afford to. He's got a rich dad. 
I don't. And the point of that is this. We've got a rich dad. We've got a father in heaven who can pour out blessing upon blessing to us. But the only way he's going to do that is if we become the funnel through which those blessings get bestowed on others. If we want to experience the blessing of Philippians 4.19 that God himself will supply every need of ours, we have to have hearts that are willing to give. See, there is joy in giving, even when we can't see it. Ultimately, there's joy in giving because we are the first recipients. God gave first. And the challenge for us today is to consider whether or not we're going to be like him. God's already given you everything you ultimately need because he gave you his son who died for you and through that your sins can be forgiven and through that you can have eternal life in heaven. You have an abundance of what you really need already. For some of you, you may not have received those blessings, but you can do so today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen of God, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. That's how you come in contact with that, those abundant blessings through Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Others of you may be challenged today. I hope so. I hope all of us are challenged to consider our attitude toward giving. And I hope all of us will seek to be cheerful givers in all that we do. Knowing that in giving, we're imitating Christ. As you look at yourself today, maybe you realize you haven't trusted God the way you should. Or maybe you've realized that you're not the giver you're supposed to be. Well, as a child of God, if you recognize that about yourself, you, you have the opportunity to correct yourself tonight or today. You have the opportunity to repent of your error or, or to acknowledge that you need help or to acknowledge you've done wrong. And that opportunity is available now too. See, at the close of every lesson, we, we conclude with the Lord's invitation. Because what we want most of all is for everyone to be right with Him. And whatever capacity that might be in your life that you need to be made right, then we invite you to come so that when we leave here today, we all will be ready to experience the joy that will be found in heaven. So if you need to respond to the invitation this morning, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
As a reminder, make sure you fill out your attendance uh, virtually.